Kia ora koutou no welcome back again to another department of conversation, so good to be back with you again. Uh, Want to be a big shout out, big thanks very much to Velo, Velo are the experts in wooden glasses and watches and uh, I think we've got our last one to give away, in fact the competition's over from the Facebook page and we'll be announcing the last winner on the Facebook page probably later on today actually if you're listening to this today or else it'll already be there uh, Velo of course are a family run New Zealand business and 10% of all the profits they they uh, put out there go to A21 with the aim of eradicating human trafficking through awareness intervention and aftercare if you want to get some styly glasses and watches that are made of res- uh, sustainable wood then check out velo.co.nz so coming up today uh, Dr. Joseph Young he's a really interesting dude uh, he is basically New Zealand's foremost expert, my words, in George R. R. Martin's writings, and especially, obviously, around Game of Thrones. Great conversation about um, fantasy and sci-fi and and Game of Thrones in general. Uh, so here it is for you, Dr. Joseph Young. This is one of the most more beautiful books I've seen. I guess, um, and I can hear us in headphones, which means we're live. We are uh, live. So welcome, Joseph Young, Joseph Rex Young, mm-hmm. <laughs> to the Department of Conversation. Um, and just as we're talking, we'll just finish it off. This is one of the more beautiful books, looking books I've seen for a very long time. But I guess if you're going to be somewhat of an expert and somewhat of a, a, an academic in George R. R. Martin, this fits that theme of fantasy very well, but it looks beautiful. Well, to an extent, I mean, the, the publishers, didn't, uh, are, they're, they're, an, they're an academic style commercial publisher, so they don't... Right. Um, Who was it? Who was the publisher? Uh, Rutledge. Okay. Um, so they're not... Uh, they're not really in the, in, in the business of, of putting uh, dragons on the cover. But, well, well <laughs> that's I mean, that, that's a that's a that's a valid point. I mean, what ha- the, the, they they gave me a a page of of swatches of of potential um, um, cover designs and yeah. said which of these would would your name look best on, and right. uh, and and I chose that one because it does seem to be seem to be appropriate to 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 uh, Martin's uh, Martin's um, milieu, but. Um, Conversely, it does sort of peg me as a bit of a, a, bit, a bit of a Tyrrell partisan, um, <laughs> because those, of course, are Tyrrell colours, and it's it's a it's a botanically themed uh, uh, um, design. So I, I don't wish to suggest I am specifically a, a, a Tyrrell partisan, but um, but yeah, that's 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 an interesting side effect. So we found you uh, actually just earlier this week. This has come together quite quickly. So thank you for making yourself available. Um, there's an article in the ODT about you, and it mm-hmm. seemed that the summation of the article, not to downplay it, was. Uh, you were thinking that a couple of the seasons of the series of Game of Thrones were a bit boring. Uh, the, <laughs> the books are much better, and this is what some of your writing is about. But a lot, I and mean, if you look at your LinkedIn page, a lot of your writing, a lot of your publications seem to be about George R. R. Martin. So, you know, would you be New Zealand's foremost expert in in Song of what is it? Uh, of Ice? Song, Song of Ice and Fire. Would you? Do you think that's probably a pretty fair statement? Well, it's it's it's. Potentially a rash statement, but I, 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 I don't I don't know any other New Zealanders who've managed to publish a book on the subject. Um, so so on, in an academic sense, probably yes. I, I, and that's probably just about just about fair. I mean, I, I, what I am is I'm I'm a, I'm a I'm a scholar of the of the of the intellectual history and abstract structure of modern fantasy literature. Right. And I've done uh, I've done a lot of a lot of work on that. I've got 
I mean, the, the, the author I've actually published most on is a, is a guy named E.R. Edison, who produced some profoundly, uh, profoundly uh, um, deep and, and, and powerful um, philosophical novels during the period of the two world wars. Okay. Um, but in order to do that work and to do, to do work on other authors like Mervyn Peake and so forth, um, I, I, I had to become very, very closely acquainted with, with, with how fantasy as a genre works and how, and what its history is. And, um, and when Game of Thrones blew up in, in 2011, um, I, 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 I looked at some shorts on YouTube and I thought, cause I, I don't have, don't have Sky. Um, and I, and I said, that actually looks like the kind of thing I've been waiting for on TV since Robin of Sherwood played out in the 19, in the 1980s. I remember Robin of Sherwood in the eighties. I remember watching that on a Wednesday night. Pretty, was, yeah. pretty pivotal show, I would think for, for my intellectual development. But, um, <laughs> I said, we, we haven't seen, haven't had anything like this on TV for like upwards of 20, 20 years. Yeah. Um, I said, I'm going to have to have a look at that, but because I'm a scholar of fantasy literature, it behooves me that my, my first impressions of those characters and, and those, uh, and, and those situations be made by via the written word rather than the moving image. Sure. So I sat down, read all the books. They are, I mean, they, 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 they are a lot, they, they look a lot more intimidating than they are. Mm-hmm. Uh, Martin's, Martin's a very fluid and, and fluent writer. He, 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 you can, you can knock out several chapters a night of, of, of his work. Um, it's, it's, um, and I, I think, I think the, the books are, are better than the TV series generally, but what, um, having done that, I, I then sort of sat down and, and started watching the TV series. And I, I, again, I, I, I think the TV series is a lot of fun and I think it's, it's, it's just about bloody time. We had something like this on TV, on TV. Um, but a lot of the, a lot of the, uh, discussion that surrounded Martin and surrounded the TV show, um, was, uh, how tremendously transgressive it was, and how it how it it broke all the rules, and how it's not doing what a fantasy is supposed to be doing, and everything like that. Like, for example, um, main characters being killed off left, right, and center. Well, the the, the, the famous one actually, there's a, a friend of mine actually who who came up with a great quote, which I actually put in a draft of the book and took out again because I couldn't attribute it. But um, who who said you know, I, I was just I was just sort of watching it for for the sets and costumes because I thought they were cool. But then then they killed Sean Bean, and I thought, wow, yeah. that's that's incredible. Yeah, you know. Um, um, and spoilers. Um, well, I can't want a series. That series one is spo- 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 spoilers for something that that that, that aired eight years ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's, that's, yeah. I was about to watch um, it. No, um, and 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 so yeah, it it, it 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 has a reputation for being very narrowly unpredictable, na- narratively unpredictable, and morally ambiguous. Yeah. Um, and and people said uh, people said this is this is this is great. This is this is way. Way more interesting. I, I, one one person described it as the Lord of the Rings for adults, which is um, <laughs> which is which is tremendously demeaning to uh, to to Tolkien. But Tol- <laughs> but Tolkien has has weathered far more demeaning comments than that. Um, and 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 we we won't go there. Um, the point is, from from my perspective, as as someone who who has you know some background in in how fantasy works as a genre. What immediately struck me upon upon looking at at this narrative on page and screen was was actually um, how many rules it was following, okay, um, and how how in in many respects how very how very, how very conventional it was, and what um, what I what struck me as as remarkable and 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 impressive about it wasn't that it was breaking rules but that it was following all the rules at once. So why did why do you think that the public 
obviously you're an academic and you've done a lot of work in this area, but why do you think the public thought it was breaking rules, even though you say it's obviously following rules? Well, because, Where's the disconnect? Because the public perception of fantasy is, is generally shaped by um, by whatever fraction of the Lord of the Rings a person can be bothered reading in fifth form. Or Harry Potter. Yeah. Um, and, and it's, this next generation. Um, it's not... Um, I, I mean, People get people get a very set idea about what fantasy is, what it can do, mm-hmm. um, and 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 how it's supposed to work, um, which doesn't take into account a lot a lot of what scholars, for example, like Tolkien and and, and C.S. Lewis w- were talking about uh, back in back in the uh, in the forties and fifties, and um, doesn't take into account a lot of uh, a lot of what uh, uh, a lot of the way that fa- that fantasy works as a as, as a genre as a as as a collection of of uh author author you know fiats and obligations mm. um so and pe- people get a very very set idea about what a fantasy is supposed to be doing and and you know when they were when they were presented with a with a with a story which you know famously you know kills off the putative protagonist um Three quarters of the way through volume one of a seven-volume story, um, they go, "Wow, that's 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 really unusual." Do you think they get a set idea about what fantasy is supposed to do, or just in this age of Hollywood endings and movies, just of what literature and/or movies are supposed to do? In other words, you know, any literature or movie, fantasy or not, if the chief protagonist was killed off on page three, they'd be like, "Holy crap, this is different." Be it fantasy or not fantasy. Well, that's I mean that's that, that's possibly true. Um, I mean. It's actually interesting looking back at looking back over over the the the, the span of, of Martin's narrative how how few characters have died once you take out the characters who were clearly there to be killed off. Yeah, um, well, that's interesting because a, because I mean a, towards the end of the series, and I haven't read the books, but I've seen the series. Mm-hmm. You know, there was that th- uh, three to go, two to go. This is the last one. People mm-hmm. were doing the opposite. They were going, "Holy crap! Why aren't why aren't people dying?" You know, they, they should never have survived that battle. More mm-hmm. should have died. This is not what this series has been about. So then it sort of started to work against them a bit yeah. in the end because everyone survived the impossible, whereas at the start everyone was being killed by the probable. Well, yes, I mean there was. There was that infamous uh, that infamous battle sequence in season seven, wasn't there? Where uh, where they had seven seven guys stuck on a on a on a rocky outcrop, surrounded by the army of the dead. Yep. Um, and then six of them survive, um, and the the one who died died of injuries sustained in an earlier fight. Yeah. Um, so and people say, well, what was the point of that? Um, um, but again, I mean, of course, in, in the in the in the penultimate episode. Um, you know, they, I think I think they knocked over uh, was it seven or eight characters. Um, I think the one been, uh, the second to last episode. I think the one that annoyed people that would appear to be, you know, looking on the uh, Doctor Google and the various uh, social media experts was is it is it Bryn Bryn of Tarth Bryn of Brienne of Tarth Brienne of Tarth and Jamie Lannister who literally had the army of the dead all over them and then they all fell away and they they survived that. But but again, you know, it may be maybe when something is so successful in a model, i.e. no one's special enough to be saved, anyone can be knocked off at any times, mm. they've set themselves up a bit of a, a, yeah. a bit of an impossible, uh, well, they can't please everybody. This is, this is and, 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 I mean, again, this is, this is a, this is a, um, I mean, this is a complicated point. This is, I'm, I'm reading, I'm, I'm writing an article about this at the moment and having great difficulty figuring out exactly how to articulate it in prose. But, um, um, the 
the basic structure of, of, of Game of Thrones, of course, is that you have, uh, on, on page and screen, is that you have um, this, this tremendous roiling um, um, political argument, this, this, this battle between the, these various houses over who's going to, to rule the, the fantasy kingdom of Westeros, um, with, uh, with uh, this terrible supernatural threat um, looming you know, beyond the wall in the, in the north. Yep. Um, and what's interesting is, I mean, and, and, and you know, the, the threat becomes apparent gradually to to John, to the character Jon Snow, who's been sent away to the north to the Foreign Legion, basically. Um, and I mean, what's interesting to me is that the uh, that Jon Snow's subplot works on a different expositional principle to everybody else's. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, uh, whereas everybody else is, or not, not quite everyone else actually, um, Bran's Bran Stark's subplot is also unusual. Um, but you know, Eddard Stark's uh, Jon Snow's foster father's um, um, subplot, which is the, the one we think we're supposed to be following mm-hmm. um, for the for the first season, um, is uh, is what what's called an immersive fantasy which is uh, which is a, a very rationalist and skeptical sort of sort of um, uh, expo- expositional strategy whereby characters talk about the world talk about the fantasy world as if there's nothing unusual about it and we from the context of their discussions figure out you know what's uh, f- figure out what this what this world is. So we accept it. Mm. This is what it is. Well, we this don't. We, we don't actually. Ex- we don't. We don't accept it. We. Um, it's. It's. It's Bran who has to accept explanations. What we. What we do as readers is we interrogate explanations. We okay. Get. We. We. Um. Uh. When. Uh, uh. When. When we. When we first meet Tyrion Lannister, um, who's another major character in the books. Um, in I mean, we first meet him in the, in the TV series when he's actually consorting with a prostitute, which is a character-building moment for him, of course. In the books, we first meet him when he's actually researching in a library, oh. which is which is also a also another um, uh, another character-building moment for him because he's a, a fiercely and aggressively literate character. Right, and um, and he he goes to the library and he said, "I've been reading all night." He said. Um, Make sh- put put these books away. Make sure you're careful with the Valyrian scrolls. The parchment is very dry, um, and and we 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 read that and we go, okay. Well, what's a Valyrian scroll exactly? It must it must be something quite valuable. Um, and then from that, um, after that, we also learn things like uh, we we hear characters talk about, uh, and we hear Catelyn Stark talk about her her husband's ancestral sword, which is. Uh, which is made of Valyrian steel, and and, mm-hmm. and she said, and she says that she had no love for swords, but she had to admit that a Valyrian blade was beautiful. And we oh, okay, so there's that there's that word again. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then we hear when um, Daenerys Targaryen's being being dolled up for a wedding to to um, Khal Drogo. Um, um, one of the people who's who's brokered the marriage is uh, is, is, uh, is says. You know those 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 wonderful eyes of hers are clearly clearly the eyes of Valyrian royalty. We go okay. There's that word again, and and it's never explicitly explained to us what what Valyria is, but we we learn from from uh, from various from from an, accre- an, an accretion of hints um, and implicit statements in in the in the in the narrative that Valyria is kind of like 
the ancient Greece or ancient Rome to to the medieval world. Well, you cer- you certainly learn that there's something very special about it. Mm. Obviously, it's it's, yeah. it's uh, like right. like sometimes when you're I'm involved with something, reading, researching, mm. and I come across a concept or a word that I'm not entirely au okay fait with, I'll go to the dictionary or mm. I'll Google it or mm. I'll look it up. So this would right. be in that age one of those words. It, it has it has weight to yeah, it. Yeah, that you would that you would that you would go to the dictionary. But of course, there is yeah. no dictionary. Yeah, for this. Yeah, yeah, of course. Or at least or at least <laughs> there wasn't when the books were first published. We yeah. now it, it now has I think it has three of its own wiki now. Oh, really? <laughs> Three different wikis for, 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 for this story. Um, but, um, yeah, we, 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 we figure out Westeros and its history and its culture and its and everything, not by, not by having anyone sit down and talk to us, mm-hmm. uh, to talk us through it, but by, by having people just talk about it as if it's normal. Yeah. And, and we, from the context of their discussions, work out that, yes, Valyria was this, this, this vanished civilization from beforehand. Um, and that and that fragments of Valyrian culture do circulate in in Westeros, and people sort of chase them down and, and research them. People like Tyrion, so that's that's immersive fantasy, and that's that's a really uh, that's a really quite tautly rational and rationalistic way of way of looking at a fantasy world, because not only are we not only are we uh, uh, reading rationalizations, you know. Mm-hmm. Catelyn Stark doesn't usually like swords, but she liked this one because it contained Valyrian steel. That's an argument. That's, yep. a, that's a rational argument yep, for gotcha. that, that Catelyn is is presenting for why she mm-hmm. finds this sword beautiful. Um, not only are we we reading a, a series of argu- of rational arguments, we are also we are also constructing a rational argument out of those rational arguments for how this for how this fantasy world works. Um, and that's part of the reason that, that Westeros is so is is so vivid to so many people is that it it, uh, it it follows this sort of expositional technique. It's being argued into existence. We are building it ourselves. Martin Martin hasn't uh, Martin hasn't uh, so much created a world as he's sort of you know compiled a world building kit and then and then sort of tipped it onto our desks and said, there you go, make something of that. Yeah, that's really, that's um, a really, I mean, mm, that's a really clever way to mm, do it. So, so um, intr- introducing this, this idea and then expanding on it for the reader to build. Mm, yeah. yeah. So that's, cool. so that, and, but again, it's, 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 it's very, it's very sternly rationalist. It argues against things. I mean, um, um, you know, the, the cost of it, it, I mean, Westeros makes sense because it's built by people making sense of it, mm-hmm. both the characters and the reader. Yeah. Um, but the cost of sense is wonder, as I point out in the book. Um, it's it. The result is a rather unglamorous sort of way of of, of looking at the world. It's a very a, a very sort of pared down, thinned down world. We are we are looking at what's actually there, not mm-hmm. what's supposed to be there. Mm-hmm. And of course, as people who are familiar with the story will know, uh, there's a lot of um, there's a lot of things that are supposed to be working that aren't mm-hmm. in, in this. Um, things like Westerosi chivalry, which is supposed to be supposed to be this wonderful you know sacrosanct set of rules. Um, and you know that one of the first things we, we 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 see knights do in this in this um, in this uh, fictional you know chivalric civilization is um, is um, a, a guy in full armor um, belts a belts a twelve year old girl with a mailed fist and gives her a, and gives her a fat lip. Um, you know it's it's. And and we look at that and we say, now hang on, that's not supposed to be happening. Yeah, yeah for sure. Yeah, because because that's not what knights are supposed to be doing. Mm. And and so you, it's and th- this is a very recognizable um, um, fantasy trope. It's 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 a thinned world. It's a world where where things that are supposed to be working isn't aren't working. Um, it's funny. It's funny. I mean, 
the, I, so much of, of life is like that in real life as well. It's mm. like, you know, uh, you know, not to, not to, pick out anyone in particular, but politicians are supposed to do things a certain way. They're supposed to look after mm-hmm. the citizens a certain way, but they kind of don't. And it seems to be not necessarily uh, uh, standalone to a fantasy genre. That seems to be quite close to real life in lots of instances. Well, as well. You know, pastors in a church aren't supposed to fiddle with young boys. They they seem to sometimes well, do it. That's that's true. And I mean, that's and we, we, we are we are seeing. And of course, there is in, in one of the in one of the later books in the in the in, in Martin's series, which is, which. Um, in, in a subplot that didn't actually make it into the TV series, we we, we do in fact actually meet a pedophile cleric, wow. um, um, and again that this 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 character was not um, was not adapted for the TV series for for complicated reasons. I think um, basically I don't I don't think they wanted to pay yet another actor. Um, <laughs> well, you know, there's there's over there's over two thousand named characters in this story. Wow, um, and. Although they've got a core cast of forty-two for the TV series, mm-hmm. which is which is ridiculously large, still massive, yeah. Um, for a TV series, it's uh, it's uh, it's it's only a small fraction of the characters who, who made it who, who were in the TV se- in the books. Sorry, it's thinking about a core um, cast of two thousand out of the book. Well, I, yes, I, I, I do have enough trouble keeping up with the actual names of people <laughs> of the series. Um, so, let alone the books. Do. I mean, um, um, so the point of this is we 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 have a world that's being built. As I say, by a very, a very careful sort of rationalistic way, which produces this sense that this this fantasy world is not working. This fantasy society is not working the way it should. Mm-hmm. Um, you you sort of start with what should be happening, and then you argue away from it. Right. Um, um, whereas, if you look at the way the world beyond the wall is is created, where, where the world that Jon Snow is building in in his his time with the Night's Watch, um, that's constructed by via a, a, a competing expositional principle um, called uh, called intrusion fantasy, whereby something has come into John's world that he can't quite make sense of. Yeah. And he is and, and his story is motivated and his his world is built not as he argues away from what's supposed to be happening, but when he when he uh, when he notices something that is happening, which isn't supposed to be happening, and argues towards it. Right. Um, he is try- he is trying to figure out what is wrong, and this just didn't come come through quite as well in the TV series. But um, uh, when when John first goes beyond the wall to to say his his Night's Watch vows, you know, there's this 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 wonderfully arranged um, bit of bit of prose where he he talks about the, the the weird sensation he gets from the from the haunted forest beyond the wall. It's, it's all it's somehow very wrong and it's very different from all the other the other forests I've been in and I can't figure out why right and I need I it's, it's like you know it's like the, the, there's a there's a finger of ice trailing up my spine and all sorts of um, all sorts of things like that John John's uh, John's focalization John's John's narration of of the of the um, of the haunted forest is is of something he can't quite make sense of right but something that he admits is uh, something he, he, he's quite happy to, to admit um, um, is there's something there. There's something weird um, out there. And and what he does really over the course of his narrative is he is he um, uh, he sort of he pursues that that odd truth that there's, that there's something other. And again, I mean, in, in the books, actually, I've, I've, I've repeatedly compared this to, 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 to Agent Fox Mulder from the X-Files. Yeah. Um, well, because, because, you know... Something's you know, out there. Jo- you know, the, the great catchphrase of the, of, of the X-Files, or one of them, was, was the truth is out there. Yeah. 
and um, and and that's very much the sort the sort of tension that drives John's story is that there's something going on behind the trees that I can't quite figure out. Yeah, but he senses so, it. He knows something's yeah, up. Yeah, and and the, and the, there's the notion that the sensibility itself, this, mm. this this visceral sense that there's something wrong here mm. um, uh, that I can't make sense of, is. Um, um, it, it, that, that's what's that's what's pushing the story forward. If John, if John decides that he's being silly and takes mm-hmm. a perfectly rational line, saying they're just trees, there's no there's no reason to to be worried here. If he takes the sort of the sort of you know rational argumentative line that you know his foster mother Catelyn Stark took with regard to Valyrian swords, um, then uh, then the story stops. Then there's that you know his story cannot continue until he gets some some credulity and starts. You know, wanting to believe. Um, you do you? I mean, I, I fear I hear it in your voice, but the 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 writings of George R. R. Martin, specifically what you're studying at the moment. You do you have a love for this? Do you really like it? Has it turned into a job? I mean, you said that this book was four years in the making. Um, yeah, from from the first time I, I sat down and tried to make sense of something in Martin's narrative in prose. Yeah, it's, and, it's and famously. People don't get rich of of writing books. No, you know. No. Um, so it's it's got to be a passion of yours. It's, it's the 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 overall life and works of George R. R. Martin. Are they a particular special part to you, or is it more well, the fantasy genre and and he's a part of it? I mean, Martin will, Martin is probably going to be you know, part of my professional life for you know ho- hopefully for a long time yet. Um, I mean, I, I've I've been away with the fairies since I was six years old, <laughs> and I I. Um, I I have I, I love love fantasy and in, in in you know as 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 a as a genre and all its forms and I always have. What um, was it in six? What was the what was the thing that picked you up that you went, holy crap, this is <laughs> this is me? Well, it's probably actually Robin of Sherwood again. Oh right. Um, I, 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 and it's very it's very hard to say. I mean, I'm 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 told I was a as an, was an enormous fan of uh, of Peter Pan as a small boy. Yeah. Um, and uh, and that's you know that that's that's a that's a, that's another fantasy and so forth. Um, I mean. And and there's been there's been you know other things going forward. I was I was always fascinated by by sort of how fantasy worlds worked and how um, and 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 exactly how you could you could put together an entirely uh, an entirely fictional universe and still still get people to 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 have some sort of emotional stake in it because that's what. Uh, that's what uh, uh, you know, fantasists do, basically. Well, are you also a sci-fi guy? Because I think well, about, as you're describing that, and I'm thinking about putting together these universes fits perfectly in with sci-fi in that as well. I mean, be it Star Trek or Star Wars or Guardians of the Galaxy, they're also building and developing whole universes mm-hmm. and whole you know worlds, etc. Yeah, well, science fiction and fantasy are, 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 are allied genres, I think is, is, is possibly the best way of putting it. I mean, Personally, I don't. I, I don't really see see much point in drawing a distinction between the two. I think. Right. I think. I think they're um, they're 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 very similar, and they have a lot. They you know, they they. I mean, the scholar who who came up with the this this notion of taxonomizing fantasy based on exp- on expositional principles, um, Farrah Mendelssohn, um, she pointed out that that. Immersive, immersive fantasy, the, the the arguing of a world into existence, mm. is um, is uh, 
very very similar it's bas- basically what science fiction does she said yeah because um, because i mean it seems that if you just change the characters i think when i think fantasy i think witches and warlocks and goblins and mm-hmm. and and you know and yep. and f- for some reason uh dark forests and spells and that mm-hmm. kind of thing if i think about fantasy uh science fiction i just think uh, you know, uh, Jedi's and spaceships and mm-hmm. uh, and and planets and mm-hmm. but that seems the locations seem to be different, but the storylines and the characters so, seem to be the same. So it's just, it's just an interesting sort of thought experiment. What about what about what about a fantasy novel which which actually uh, uh, dealt with uh, with the um, with the emergence of an of an entirely new religion in. England in the early 20th century and the consequences that would have on public perceptions of the First World War. Well, that sounds interesting. <laughs> yeah, because that's that's uh, that's basically something that uh, that I, I that's what that's what E.R. Edison writes about broadly. Um, so it's a, so let's so say that again. It's a it's a fantasy. So so okay. So other than the characters and the locations, which are fairly obvious in my mind, and I might mm-hmm. be wrong, what's the Difference really between a fantasy and a sci-fi. Well, again, I, I I don't I don't really really think there is one. I mean, I okay. mean, I I I get that that, you know, that that people do disagree with me, and that and that there are there are people who 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 observe a very very strong difference between the two. Actually, I remember once they were re- listening to a radio interview with uh, uh, René Abergenois, who was the actor who played Odo in Deep Space Nine. Um, who who uh, was asked what it was like appearing on a science fiction show, and 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 he very very firmly shut the interviewer down and said said Star Trek is not science not science fiction, it's fantasy, because wow. he because he drew a very strong distinction between the two. And again, I, I'm not going to tell him he's wrong, but there are um, there are um, there are so many similarities between the two, and and. The differences differences are so marginal. I mean, that. Do you think that, like, because as a person myself who's um, much more of a science fiction fan than fantasy, in fact, I barely watch any fantasy. Um, but what you're saying is obviously the same sort of thing. Personally, I sort of like look at it and say, as sci-fi, obviously there's aliens and other planets, but there are often not many science fictions. I can't even think one off the top of my head that doesn't have Earth and earthly places like New York or Los Angeles or London as being so. Earth is real, and then the rest of the galaxy is a fantasy place with aliens and so forth. You know, so DC, Star Wars, yeah, Star, well, yeah, well, except yeah. for Star Wars. See, there, what about Dune? Your yeah, June, oh, so I haven't. Yeah. <laughs> and so I, I'm more thinking of like a lot of sort of modern science fiction. Often, you know, so you look at Star Trek, um, with the new, especially the reboots and stuff, and 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 things like uh, Stargate. Um, so you're you're saying that science I, I, fiction has an element of Earth usually attached to it? A little bit, yeah. I think, and whereas fantasy often is completely whilst they're they're uh, bound by the laws of earthly physics. It's sort of there's no Londons and. Well, other than sort of you know, water machines. Well, what about Harry Potter? What about um, the search for Grindelwald? Whatever that kind of stuff. That exactly. would be fantasy. Yeah. And again, and again, I'd classify that as fantasy, though, wouldn't you? Yeah, yeah, yeah but that's what I'm saying. That's that has yeah. got the Earth mm. location. And yeah, then true. again, you know, getting getting don't don't, don't make my argument completely. <laughs> <laughs> getting back, I mean, getting back to again. I mean, I'm I'm not. I I I wonder how many people who are, are going to watch this have read have read a read any of E. R. Edison's novels because again, with the best will in the world, he's not terribly popular. So you just pause for a sec because the so the name of the author again from World War. 
one World War Two? <laughs> E.R. Edison. E.R. Edison. Edison like the light bulb. No, Edison with two Ds. Okay. E-D-D-I-S-O-N. So explain to me then, I'm interested, when you say that it's about a religion forming, et cetera, et cetera, is it witches, Wiccan, is it, is it goblins and things, or or is it more the structure that turns to, that particular writing into fantasy? Um, I mean, what's what's going on in in uh, in E.R. Edison's novels um, is this uh, this. Uh, I mean, they they follow the life story of a of a, of a guy named Edward Lessingham um, from um, from uh, he's he's born in I think he's, I think I think Edison made him exactly the same age as himself, so he was born in, born in eighteen eighty two. Um, and he lives and li- lives and dies at a great age in 1972. So in the future of of of, of Edison's world. Okay. And he's born and 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 lives in um, in in Yorkshire. Um, but uh, over the course of his of his life, he has he has a series of of um, quite bizarre adventures in, in in which it becomes apparent that he his his uh, his life is is. Running uh, in partnership with it, with 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 that of an of, a, of another character in a secondary world in in, in a different world, like a different um, realm, a different universe, different universe, uh-huh. um, 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 in a, a place called Zimiamvia, um, which um, which begins to raise all sorts of interesting questions of uh, which which you as the reader have to have to sort of apply yourself to about who's the real Lessingham is, is the is the earthly Lessingham the real one or, right. the, or the or the fantasy Lessingham the real one um but Lessingham uh on earth it, particularly in, in it, it, it the last novel Edison wrote that he actually lived to see published because he had he died before his first his last book came out um um the uh, relationship between earth and and Zimiamvia is st- starts to become apparent and what 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 you end up with is the um, is is an impression of someone who's living his life in accordance to a, a, a demonstrably um, true religion, um, which gives him an entirely different perspective on uh, on events um, uh, as uh, as the as as Europe begins the run up to the First World War. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, and then the First World War takes place, and 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 then its its aftermath is is um, um, is, uh, is is explored. Um, and I mean, this book came out in 1941. So, so yeah, it's, I'm looking it's, at it's, the it's I'm looking real, at the uh, trilogy was mm. between 35 and 58, which means he wrote in the past of his writing before World War One, mm. but also he then. Was projecting it into the future, writing up to 1972. Right, that sounds because, interesting. Because Lessingham dies at dies at a, at a tremendous age um, after having after having actually carved out his own his own kingdom in a, in a, in a remote corner of non, remote corner of Norway. Um, but uh, the 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 uh, the sort of um, uh, perspective that that Lessingham has. Uh, in, in, in light of his of, of not, not not quite of his knowledge of of, of Zimiamvia, but of his faith in it, mm-hmm. um, um, and and his particularly his faith in the notion that that uh, that he and his wife have uh, have uh, parallels in Zimiamvia, um, gives him an entirely new set of set of perspectives on 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 earthly events, um, and I, it is I, I 
wrote an article about this, which was published in a book um, in 2015 called uh, Baptism of Fire, which is about the, um, about the influence of the First World War on British fantasy, mm-hmm. which, was, which is huge. I mean, it's, it's, you know, I mean the, the two great architects of, of modern fantasy, uh, J.R.R. Tolkien and C.S. Lewis, were both World War I veterans, and yep. neither of them was shy about pointing out that, uh, that, their, that their wartime experience uh, influenced their um, influenced their writing. Um, Tolkien, rather more so than Lewis, it must be said. To, uh, Lewis does appear to ultimately have been sort of, sort of the braver of the two, ultimately. Um, but uh, I mean, it's it's it, it is a big deal, and 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 it was a, a big deal on Edison as well, because I mean, Edison was 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 slightly too old to be directly involved in the First World War, but he did. Um, he was in his in his late thirties at the time. He was born in 1882. Yeah, so sorry, early 30s. Yes, so he's not not military age, and also he was he was a civil servant. That was yeah, his yeah. day job, and so he had, he had a sensitive government position, which which kept him out of the war. Um, so he had, didn't have any direct uh, it didn't have any direct ex- experience of the war, but he had a direct experience of the of the culture that led up to it and the culture that that followed it. Right, and he had uh, he had some very some very definite things to say about both, um, and he uses uses fantasy to explore those explore those ideas. Um, and whether whether it's a, a science fiction or a fantasy is an interesting interesting question. I mean, the first um, the first uh, uh, book that Edison wrote uh, features Lessingham being being transported from Earth to Mercury, um, um, it, but in order to to witness a great war between the witches and the demons that live on Mercury. Do you think so, fantasy has um, I'm thinking about for the authors. I mean, I'm thinking about the, what these guys went through in World War One, etc. Mm-hmm. Um, has like the utmost ability for escapism. It's like what they've seen, what they've experienced. They want to get as far away from that as possible. And what could be further away than making up a, a new world and a new way of doing things, or the perfect night at, at the end of the battle, uh, you know, makes the perfect decision and all the planets align, mm-hmm. planets, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, as though are those life experiences not necessary, but you know how they always talk about if you talk to a really, really good stand-up comedian, they've typically had a shitty childhood, mm-hmm. or you talk to the best musicians and they're tortured souls. Mm-hmm. I wonder if the experiences and things like World War One or in those times were necessary to bring these literary works out. Well, and that's uh, and that's 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 an interesting question. I mean, there, there was a, a, a book written um, a number of uh, se- several years ago now by a guy named John Grant called Tolkien and the Great War, which which is basically it's basically a biography of Tolkien, specifically looking at his military experience and his experiences of the war. Um, and and the deaths of most of his close friends in in, in the war, um, um, but he, he, in in the postscript to that to that book, uh, Grant speculates vaguely on on what Tolkien's work would have looked like if um, if, uh, if if he hadn't gone to war. And the best best suggestion that Grant was going to come up with was that or Grant could come up with, sorry, um, is that you would end up with something. Much closer to the works of William Morris, who was writing fantasy in the in the eighteen eighties, eighteen nineties, or I think slightly earlier than that actually, which um, which is well, I mean, William Morris's fantasies are fascinating for all sorts of, of reasons of their own. They're it's, it's it, they're remarkable uses of the genre, but um, but uh, they're much less directly involved with questions of morality. 
right. um, which is which is one of the things that really re- really drives um, um, Tolkien's work. Um, um, it's it, it the Lord of the Rings in particular, but 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 the whole Middle Earth legendarium in general is uh, is is fascinatingly concerned with 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 a quite eerily realistic depiction of human morality. Well, um, I, mean, I mean, imagine what you see in war, what you see in the mm, trenches and stuff. Mm, you must see the worst right. of humans and wish for the best of humans. Well, you see the best and the worst. Obviously, you see the worst and the best. Sorry, I mean, um, um, one of the uh, one of the uh, points that that people who you know the the, the, the anti Tolkien crowd often often trots out is 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 how dreadfully patronizing the depiction of Sam Gamgee is mm. um, in the in in the books and it's, it was, well yes that's 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 the Oxford educated you know you know middle class British wanker talking about talking talking about the talking about the, the working class <laughs> and if you know anything of Tolkien's childhood and if you know anything of Tolkien's background that very quickly falls to pieces right um, Tolkien didn't uh, didn't have a particularly comfortable childhood. He was orphaned at the age of twelve. Mm. Um, he twelve or thirteen, I forget. You know, a lot earlier than he should have been is the point. Um, you know, he he was he had no, no permanent home between the ages of of thirteen and eighteen. Um, um, you know, he was and, and and of course very little in the way of any any sort of moral support. You know, from 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 adults. Um, um, you know, it's it, it's not it's not a comfortable middle class childhood by any means. Mm. Edison had a comfortable middle class childhood. Edison went to Eton College, right? right? So that's you know, um, and came out of it probably the better for it. I would say actually, um, it's interesting doing archival research at Eton. They're, 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 it's an interesting place to be. You've um, been there yourself. I have. Perf- I, I should. I should. I should tread very carefully here because I don't want to be mis- misunderstood. I have been to Eton for the purposes of doing archival research on Edison. Sure, I, 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 I am not in, in any any way an, an alumnus of Eton. No, 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 uh, no, no, no. Which in which in this day and age is probably just as well because uh, you know particularly particularly in Britain, they, um, last year or so, Britain went through one of one of the, the brief sort of brief sort of palsies of fretting they go through as a, as a culture where they sort of where where. Um, um, they they start to to get very very worried that people m- may think that Britain is a you know um, is a is a um, historically Christian capitalist constitutional monarchy and this, 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 this is that Britain's not 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 quite sure where people have picked up this dreadful idea but <laughs> but, but they're they're determined to do whatever they can do to possibly uh, possibly uh, uh, um, you know, d- diffuse this ridiculous misconception, um, which tends to in, tends to run to, to a series of, of hand wringing um, television documentaries about how Eton still exists and how dreadful that is. Um, so you've researched there, but but, you're, re- not, but you're not friends of Prince Harry, basically. Is what no. we're saying. And again, I, and again, I, I pers- personally, I, I, you know, looking looking back at the sort of sort of experiences I had at high school versus versus you know uh, an, an English public public school education. Frankly, I, I I probably would have jumped at the chance, but but. Um, but um, yeah, I went to. Um, yeah, I, I, I was in England in, in two thousand and sixteen. Um, I had had a summer to kill in in Europe before take as I moved between academic academic appointments, and I spent it researching Edison in various libraries, which included popping to Eton and seeing nice. seeing what sort of what sort of records they have of him, um, which is which was slightly disappointing because he seems to have passed through. 
the school as if he wasn't there. Um, <laughs> there was, there was, they, they had almost no records of him beyond, wow. be, beyond, beyond a good solid attendance record. Um, and of course, part, part of the reason for this is that he was doing what ordinary teenage boys do when they're at high school, which is spending his lunch hours sitting down teaching himself Old Norse. Um, as you do. Yes, as one does. Um, he, he, uh, he was fascinated by, uh, by the literature of the Viking period, and, uh, which even in, in the 1890s still hadn't actually been translated into English most wow. of it. And so he said, well, obviously the logical thing to do is, um, is, is I'm going to have to learn the language that it's written in. Of course. That's what else would you um, do? And, and, and so... I know, that, I know that at high school I was spending my lunch breaks learning Latin. So, you know, yeah. it's pretty standard these days. Yeah, I was learning Aramaic, biblical yeah. Aramaic, just for fun. Yeah, just for fun. No. Yeah, see, see, I, <laughs> I, well, I, I, see what, I, what I was trying to do, of course, was, try, was trying to compile a... a, 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 a uh, an authoritative list of all the alien species that exist, <laughs> that exist in the Star Wars universe. So you know, I, I'm I, we, we 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 do what we we, we do what we we, we do. But um, you know, it's it, the the best picture I can get of Edison's high school high school days of, is of, is of someone sort of sitting quietly in the corner, getting on with it. Yeah. Um, so he he was um, a he was he was wallpaper. He um, was there, but he wasn't making a big splash and. As you say, attendance, but not much else. Mm. He didn't make the first eleven, so to speak, or the first fifteen. They, yeah. did. they, they. Or, or, actually, interestingly, interestingly, he um, he never signed up for swimming lessons, oh. which was a which was a. Um, and I said, I, I asked the the librarian why why would that be a matter of, of record, and uh, and he said, well, because regulations in in uh, in uh, Eton are that you you don't. Um, you don't get to participate in any of the school uh, of the school's rowing teams mm-hmm. unless you can unless you can swim. Um, he said, as the re- uh, after a rather tragic incident in the eighteen seventies, right? Um, that that regulation was introduced and and uh, and and was very very strictly adhered to, and of course it makes eminent sense. Um, but uh, uh, so he said, what that means is probably. Uh, um, given given how prestigious the rowing teams were at Eton, he said that probably means that uh, that uh, that Edison had no interest in that. Um, uh, interesting. If you if you wanted to, I mean, I've I've brought them up on um, Wikipedia as we've been talking. Oh, the, Wikipedia, of- the Wikipedia page is slanderously awful. <laughs> no, seriously, I, I mean, it, it 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 draws on it draws on uh, on some research by by uh, a scholar named Elsbreg de Camp from the nineteen sixties and seventies, which. Um, which uh, is, uh, as I say, utterly, utterly, utterly slanderous. Without, without putting my uh, seal of approval on the Wikipedia page, um, but looking at the books he's written, where, are they still in print? Do you get them on E? If someone want, like, I'm interested. They were, they were reintroduced, or they, they were reprinted. There was, a, there was a, there was a, um, a new edition of them all bought out in, in, uh, in. Um, 92. 2000, 2000, 92. I think it was not. I, I just saw it. Yeah, the Wikipedia page. The, is, this, is this the one you're looking at here, just on the page? The, Up the, the top. Tri- the re- republish of the trilogy. Is that what you mean? Um, everything that Edison did was was republished. I think in 2000 and uh, 2015. I'm just looking at the trilogy was right. The, 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 the page has not been updated for a while. Mike Dickerson, yeah. yeah. My, my, own, my own research on Edison has actually overturned a lot of the contents of that page. Uh, um, here's a question for you. If someone 
wanted to get into fantasy? What's a book they can start with? What's a story they should start with? Uh, if they haven't already? Yeah. Um, well, I've, I've, um, I've often said that I, 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 don't, I don't think yet that, that Tolkien's Legendarium has been surpassed either in terms of, of uh, depth or scope um, or, or indeed readability, I think. Um, a lot so of, starting with Hobbit? I would, I, I, you could do that if you wanted to. I mean, the difficulty with, with, with The Hobbit is that it is, you know, at the risk of suggesting that it's, it's particularly straightforward, it's, uh, it, it is intended for a, child, for a child reader. Right. And as a result, it, um, it, there are a lot of, a, a lot of uh, what are called heterodigetic um, um, uh, interpolations that the, the author talks to the reader a lot. Right. And does so in, in, a, in a way that an adult might speak to a child. Right. Um, so, so for an adult, it might be a bit patronizing, it might be a bit easy. But yeah, well, and, and again, and again um, um, you know, Elsbrecht de Camp um, um, wrote, a, wrote an article about this, pointing out that there's, there's, there's absolutely no reason why anyone over the age of about nine would bother with The Hobbit. Um, because it, it's actually fascinating because de Camp was, was American. And he was writing primarily about British people, right? Um, and in what era? When was he writing? Sixties uh, and seventies. Okay. And it's it's fa- it's fascinating because he seems to it's it's rather like uh, rather like Walt Disney did with with Mary Poppins. He seems seems to have regarded English people as a sort of separate species, right? And and he had all sorts of bizarre preconceptions about English people built yeah. into his narrative, which, yeah. um, like you know you know. Hence, I'm thinking Dick Van Dyke was an acceptable outcome. Well, something like he he had he had, he had sort of things like you know, Tolkien he interviewed Tolkien and Tolkien said, "Call me, call me Ronald," and 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 he said, "I thought this was I thought this was remarkable because British people do not do not address each other by their first names, um, and, yeah. and all sorts of all sorts of you know idiocies like that." Um, Can but, I just say this is a complete <laughs> complete complete side note? There's a new Mary Poppins movie. You know this, Chase? Yeah. And just com- this is completely off topic, but I watched it with my kids the other day, and it's actually quite good. Is it? It's it's no, that's good. It's nothing surpasses the original <laughs> kind of classic thing, but but that new Mary Poppins and Dick Van Dyke's it's, it's, in it. It's kind of a, a semi sequel, isn't it? Yes, it is a yeah. sequel. So what what what? Sorry, what role does Dick da- Dick Van Dyke? He play plays a very old banker, but the storyline oh, is okay. he the the kids Michael and whoever they are from the first one are now adults living in the same house, right? And he has a battle again with the bank. Um, and they have to, and, and there's, it's referential. It talks about what happened okay. in the first one. So, okay. like, you're completely, but, but completely, yeah, mm-hmm. there's the, that's the character he plays as a, in, in the second one, he plays mm-hmm. a, um, he's 92 and he doesn't speak with that accent. So, well, that's, that's something I think we can all be grateful <laughs> for. <I think. laughs> um, yes, I mean, I mean, do you have, um, obviously as an academic and certainly someone who studies, um, fantasy literature, what do you like in other areas of fantasy? Like, is there something you're watching at the moment? Do you have particular fantasy movies you love? Like, you started talking about the Norse um, language there, and I straight away thought of uh, the History Channel series Vikings. I love that series. Right. See, see I, I haven't seen that. Again, I, I, I have to say, I don't currently own a television, um, <laughs> which is you know, not, not out of any particular aversion. For but then the, who watches TV on television these days? Well, that's 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 another point. I, I remember, actually, I was seeing I was keeping up with, with fan engagement with, with Game of Thrones on YouTube, as, as you do. Um, and I came across an interview with um, 
with um, Jason Momoa. Yeah. Uh, who is the, 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 the fabulously intimidating um, actor who plays Carl Drogo in the, in the TV series. He seems to be um, the most amazing human being in the world because not only is he this intimidating species of a human being, but if you look at any of his personal stuff, like his Instagram account, he seems to be the fucking nicest person in the world as well. He is. That's yeah, bizarre. He seems to be something of a class act, yes. Yeah. But the... Um, but... Uh, he was asked what, what what his Game of Thrones viewing party is like, and and I think it's, I think his wife actually butted in and uh, over the top of him and said we, we 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 try to watch it on a TV if we can, yeah if we can. <laughs> Which is, um, uh, what's his wife's name? She was in um, Cosby Cosby Show. Was she the I old didn't, daughter? I didn't. I I I wasn't paying enough attention. You used to, to be Cosby married show. to Lenny Kravitz. That's his that's his uh, wife. I forget her name right now. Right. Uh, yeah, Lisa Bonet. Oh, okay, yeah, Denise Huxtable. Right. Okay, yeah. I didn't. I didn't realize that. Oh, well, there you are. That's that's that. Yeah, I um, think. Yeah, and then, and her daughter is uh, Zoe Kravitz. Right, and yeah. she was in the most recent Mad Max, wasn't she? I'm not sure. I'm pretty sure she, she was yeah, one of I the. I remember seeing something about a Kravitz Zo- being in Zo- something. Zoe Kravitz oh. was. Or, or, I, 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 how common a name is Kravitz? I'm not sure. No, um, I, I, I think it was. No, it is. Yeah, Zoe Kravitz. Yeah, uh, it's her daughter. Yeah, their daughter, wasn't it? Yes. Um, anyway, yes. Um, yes. So, yes. Yeah. Who, who watches TV on TV these days? I mean, yeah, but do I, you have do you do you have like Sarah? Are you? I mean, if you, I'm not 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 right now. No, Vikings um, is very good. So I'm told. The the I, series for people who don't know it, the series of Vikings is what they've done is they've used uh, historical characters and historical events and then written a drama around it. So, for example, there's two characters... Uh, this is exactly... This is exactly what Tolkien saw himself as doing. Oh, really? Yep. Absolutely. Even writing historical events. Because like, what they do is they, they mix it up for um, for TV. So mm. there's a, a character, Ragnar, mm. who is the main character for the first few series, and he has a brother, Rollo. Mm-hmm. And both of these characters are historical mm real people but they actually lived at different times and they mm-hmm. weren't brothers mm-hmm. so but they've put them together for the storyline but the things that happen in their lives are mm-hmm. historical mm-hmm. events we see I mean, this is this is this is broadly speaking this is this is sort of how, how middle earth sort of came to be okay um one of the things that one of the the stories that tolkien was was introduced to by a, by a school teacher was is the story of beowulf i don't know if are you familiar with the, with the, with, the, with the tale of beowulf i i look, to be honest with you i have heard of the no. the themes of it, but I don't no. know it. No, no. Um, Beowulf is is is. I, I remember actually in, in, explaining this story from the ground up to to an Iranian student in Sarajevo, and, and she was very impressed. So there you are. But um, <laughs> but um, um, it's 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 the first really I, I think the first really significant piece of of poetry we have in English. Yeah, um, is 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 the tale of Beowulf. Which is is the story of, of of a man named Beowulf, which is a name that means bear, um, and he uh, he uh, is is charging around. He spends his youth charging around Scandinavia, you know, killing monsters and so forth. But he kills uh, kills um, two monsters in particular: the, the, the great ogre Grendel, a cursed of God, and and then when Grendel's mother turns up aggrieved. Um, that her son is dead, um, um, Beowulf manages her as well, um, and and he becomes a king and he rules wisely and well for, for fifty years in a in a span of time that was that is 
passed over in two lines of the poem. Um, and then, um, then, uh, as a, as a very old man, he, he must, must face down a dragon. Um, and, and he doesn't particularly want to, cause he's sort of passed it by that stage, but he says, you know, I'm, 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 I'm still King. I still have to do it. Mm. Um, and he does, and, and he does manage to kill the dragon, but he suffers fatal injuries during that fight and he's, and he dies. And, it, um, and it's been pointed out, for example, that, that Beowulf's funeral at the end of, at the end of of the, the poem is is a absolute dead ringer for for, for Theoden's funeral in the Lord of the Rings. Right. It's, it's it's lifted almost word for word right. directly, directly from it. Um, but but the, the so is that the, homage or plagiarism? Where do you sit on that? Well, I was I, I, I think I think homage is probably exactly the right word right, for fair it. Enough. But but um, but uh, when Beowulf was Beowulf was first discovered. In the, in the 18th century, it's not it's not a continuous tradition. Um, we we don't know exactly when the when the poem was was pub, was was written. It's anything from sort of about the the, the late seventh to the to the late 10th century AD, and then disappeared mm-hmm. um, without you know without trace. It wasn't anything that anyone talked about until until uh, uh, a manuscript was discovered. Um, in the 18th century, and and people started reading it and said, "Gosh, this is this is like the earliest." Poem we have written in any anything that could be recognizable as anything that eventually became English. Yeah, wow. Um, and they said, "Why on earth would they write such a ridiculously silly poem?" Mm. Um, because they 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 said they said this is there's all this nonsense about fighting giants and 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 uh, and giants' mothers and then and then fighting dragons and so forth, which take up so much of the poem, and yet this poem is clearly happening in in the real. World of early medieval Scandinavia. There, you know, there, are, there are passing references, right, to to actual so actual people located said, in real time yeah. with fantasy so said, elements. Yeah. So they said, why, why on earth, why on earth would anyone, um, would anyone be uh, be 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 doing? Surely they 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 should have written a story about how Be- you know Beowulf's time as king is compressed into I think two lines of the poem, <laughs> um, and it's a three thousand line poem. So wow. they said. So they said. Um, what, surely, what he should have been doing is they should have written like you know two thousand lines about that, and then maybe made some passing references to dry, giants and and and, so, and dragons and so forth, or ogres and dragons and so forth. And um, and so in, in in a sense, it's it's the, the term wild actually was 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 repeatedly um, 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 brought up with regard to Beowulf. It's, mm. it's, um, it's said to be, it was said to be a wild poem, um, and a very early and primitive one, um, where people couldn't keep track of the difference between, between, you know, pagan mythology and Christian beliefs. There are a number of, of things in the poem that make it very clear that it's, it's written, it's at least written by a Christian, mm-hmm. um, um, exactly what faith, Beowulf himself is supposed to be isn't made clear, I, right. I think. But, but you know, it's 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 written from a Christian perspective, um, and uh, and then Tolkien came along and published an essay. Well, actually, gave a gave a lecture. I think in, in I think it was nineteen forty six. No, that was earlier than that. I think nineteen thirty six. I think um, he was w- well into his career by this stage. Um, where he said, "Well, that, that's not the point. You see, it's it's not a poem about how to be a good king." Mm. Um, um, it's not a poem about about you know wise and 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 beneficent kingship. It's a poem about you know how to be a wise and and, and beneficent person. Right. And um, and 
in order to do in order to, to depict that you have to depict someone going up against not only the worst thing that a person could, possi- could, could possibly find themselves against, but a, the worst thing that a person could imagine themselves finding themselves against. And, um, and, and, and it's, it's, it, it's, it's, it, Tolkien said, it is, it is, the reason that Beowulf is such a, such a vivid, powerful person, the reason he's such an extraordinary, his, his you know, human qualities shine out as, as, as vividly as they do, as indeed they do. I strongly recommend this poem, by the way. It's wonderful. Yeah. Um, there was a wonderful uh, translation of it into modern English by Seamus Heaney several years ago, which people might want to look at. Um, um, he said that the reason that Beowulf is such a vivid, powerful person the, the, uh, is is that his humanity, his his courage and bravery, and his fidelity to his purpose, and his strength and everything, all these 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 solid human qualities that he has, are. Most evident, most evident to us because they are being presented in relation to a purpose-written point of contrast, something that makes no pretense of humanity, mm. something that has, something that isn't real at all, but you know is 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 there purely to provide a point of contrast to Beowulf, and Beowulf stands up against these most terrible of foes from from you know the darkest corners of our imagination, and uh, he prevails, and, and there's actually. There's a section that I've been I've been looking at because I had to had to introduce it into my most recent essay about about Game of Thrones, where I said where um, you know, there are people who refuse to help Beowulf against his against his, his against this dragon who 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 won't go up go up and fight against uh, fight the dragon um, because it's too scary and and so Beowulf goes out almost only has one he has one person who's prepared to help him and um, eventually. Um, Beowulf nails the dragon. He has a, a, a prolonged, um, you know, dying his prolonged dying farewells to his, his colleague Wiglaf, who helped him fight the dragon. And then, um, and then uh, uh, after he dies, the, the 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 people who refuse to, to help him sort of creep out from where they've been hiding, and they see, they look at the dead dragon there, which is lying lying coiled in a great heap next to Beowulf. Mm. A great long sinuous animal. This dragon. <laughs> uh, it's what, it's, there's a wonderful image of it. Of it, it, it it's 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 you know excited out of its out of its um, out of its lair by someone sneaking into its lair and stealing a cup from it, a, a jeweled cup from its from its hoard, and it immediately notices the hoard that the cup is missing when it wakes up, and it goes and it comes it goes it comes comes out snuffling after the after the cup going. <laughs> <laughs> through, through, yeah. and there's this wonderful image of this of this dragon you know, snuffling through the, and it's just wonderful. Um, but um, um, incidentally, that's also exactly the same thing that gets smorgonoid in the Hobbit. So there you are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was just thinking um, the parallels there as well. Um, and that's that's not a coincidence. No. Um, but um, 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 Wiglaf, the the um, the, uh, the 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 person who did help Beowulf, said said. Where were you? And these 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 other guys say, "Well, look at this. This is just an animal. We 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 could have we could have killed this." Mm. Um, and and Wiglaf says, "Well, yes, you could have, but you didn't. Beowulf did. This is his victory. It's on him, and you get to live in infamy forever." <laughs> um, which is uh, which is exactly exactly the situation actually that, that Cersei Lannister finds herself in at the end of Game of Thrones. That's exactly what I was um, thinking. That she chooses not to come on board. And, yeah, um, and and uh, and get squashed by a rock. Well, she gets squashed by a rock, which that, that's certainly what happens in the TV series. Spoiler. We, 
be, it'll, it'll be it'll be interesting to see what happens to her in the book because of course a lot of a lot of what's um, a lot of what's uh, uh, happened in the TV series can't actually happen in the books going forward. Um, Why so? Well, the the most obvious example is um, Sansa can't kill Ramsay Bolton, right? In the in the books, for the very simple reason that she never marries him, right? Um, the, the the character who marries. Ramsey in in the books is another character, a, character, a, a girl named Jane Poole, um, who actually was in the TV series. They the, the the producers said yes, that that extra in the background there behind Sansa <laughs> in that scene, that's Jane Poole because she's been in she's in she's throughout volume one of the te- of, of the books. Sorry, she's she she sort of pops her head into the narrative and she you know she she's horrible to Arya on a number of occasions. She's one of the characters that you know, teases Arya. But um, but uh, it, it's her who ends up marrying Ramsay and being being horribly mistreated by him. So um, so so the yeah. books are going to find a different place. Are you excited by them coming out? Like, is it something that you're looking forward? I'm to? I'm certainly looking forward to book six. I look forward to seeing what seeing what happens. Is there um, any concern about his health, George R. R. Martin? Like, is there any concern that? Oh, good heavens! I mean, he's he's actually there's actually a wonderful uh, interview with him that was that was. Um, it, I, I did. I do remember seeing footage of it on YouTube, but I forget. I, I, I can't remember where. Um, where he was actually. Where this question was put directly to him. Where, where they said, you know, what if you die before? What, what yeah. if you die before the books come out? And and he's actually he, he actually responds by flipping off the interviewer um, because uh, because he said, what, what sort of a horrible question to ask is that? <laughs> you know, um, and it is. I, I, I have every every confidence that Martin is working assiduously on 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 the books and that, that it is proceeding as swiftly as as he can can make them. And that uh, I, I'm, I'm sure we, I, I'm sure even even from a purely commercial standpoint, I'm sure it'll happen. I mean, well, the, speaking of books, yeah. we've been going for an hour and ten minutes. Mm-hmm. This is like a little TARDIS for time, and right. here it flies by. And um, we didn't even get to talk about how two or three of those series of Game of Thrones stagnated. I was always a bit concerned where there seemed to be at least one, if not two, series. <laughs> well, the base. The- I just it ended up. I just. Couldn't wait mm-hmm. for the Queen of Dragons to get back to back and actually fight. She seemed to just sit out for about two seasons. It was the, annoying, and I know that was a the, part of your part of your conclusions and your was it? the 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 very the very short version of, of of the story I'm writing at the moment is is um of, of of sorry the article I'm writing at the moment is is that as I said, Jon Snow's writing is is narrating an intrusion fantasy. Mm-hmm. Um, his story is 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 predicated on his faith that there's something out there that he doesn't understand. Right, something behind um, the trees. Yeah, yep. That um, feeling. We that's about what, that's earlier. that's why he knows nothing. Yeah, his, his his it's his job to know nothing and to and to suspect a great deal. And of course, at the Battle of Hardhome, he sees the sees the um, sees the Night King, and he says, Ah, right, that's what's going on. Mm. I know now. Jon Snow knows everything. Um, and be fair to say, he's sort of, especially other than people who are with him, but the only person in power within that uh, forty-two main characters who does have all the answers. Well, he he published. Oh, Sig- was her name Sigrid? Igrid. Igrid. That's, that's, that's she. She came up with. She came up with the thing. But I mean, um, Jon Snow publicizes his discussion, and we we of course as as viewers and readers know that that Jon Snow is on something that this is, that this is what's going on. Yep. This has never been a story about the Iron Throne. This has always been a story about uh, about whether people can can actually you know step up to this terrible challenge as as Beowulf did with with his dragon. 
Um, and uh, and so for the for, between Battle of Hard the massacre at Hardhome, which is episode four point eight or four point nine, I forget. Um, and the Battle of Winterfell and the Long Night, which is episode seventy, episode seventy. Um, you know, the the whole the whole story is basically revolving around one question: Can John pull this off? Right. And in the end, he can. Yeah. And so again, I'm, I don't want to make too much of this because I, I don't actually address the point in my in in the book. This didn't occur to me until until after the book came out. And that's why I'm writing about it now for publication elsewhere. Um, but I said I said. Um, you know, for the for for the entirety of of season six and seven, again, it, it's 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 there's just one question: Can John pull this off? Can mm. he get Can he get the seven samurai together to to fight to fight the you know to fight the dead? And it and it turns out it turns out in, in the end that he can, which is which is something we can all be grateful for. Um, but uh, but uh, you know, it it removes the the, the two things that that. Game of Thrones was was famous for, um, in uh, which is moral ambiguity and narrative unpredictability. Yeah, people um, who don't know stuff. Yeah, because because we know John is morally assured, and we and we know where the story is going. Mm. So, again, without without wishing to suggest that I think that the 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 last two or three seasons of the show are complete pants, which I think is what the which I think is what the ODT article sort of implied. And again, I'm. Yeah, you think the, the ODT didn't maybe quite represent your well, positions clearly the enough? Journalist, the journalist and I are actually trying to figure out exactly where the, where the mistake was. I, I, that's not quite what I meant. I may I may have over, over over overstated the point when I was talking to him, and I don't want to I don't want to you know blame him for anything. Um, but um, but it wasn't. Qu- but what ended up being published wasn't quite what I meant. I didn't I didn't say that the that Game of Thrones could have ended at season five. Yeah, I'm saying that at season five. I'm saying that the climax of the series, where where Jon Snow knows everything now, yeah. is in season five, yeah. and that uh, and that um, season six and seven therefore um, are denuded of what people liked about Game of Thrones, right? Which is why people would dislike it. And I, I don't because the don't, whole the whole winter is coming thing mm. is also the unknown. It's like mm. winter is coming, but what's winter? And then mm. he knows what it is. Yeah, and I, again, I don't I don't wish to wish to to actually make any determined you know personal opinion on this myself or express any particular st- strong opinion on this myself but i can see i can see why there would be waning uh public interest in the show if the show is suddenly denuded of the qualities that people used to like about it that's that's the point i'm trying to make yeah and that was the point i possibly didn't make quite as well as i should have to the odt well listen mm-hmm. um your book George R. R. Martin and the Fantasy Form. Mm-hmm. Where can people get this from? This could this can be purchased from the uh, from the Rutledge website. Uh, I understand Amazon have it. Last yep. there you go, Kindle as well. Um, well, okay, yep. There's a Kindle edition. That's 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 good. Um, um, there is there is an ebook edition, which is 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 cheaper. But um, um, the uh, I, I mean, how does this work? There's one on the top right hand corner that says it's one hundred and seventeen dollars fifty seven. Yep. Well, that would be that would be the uh, that would be the, the the hardback edition that you're holding in your in your hand there. So, what does this retail for? Um, I I'm not sure. Okay. Um, um, again, it, it's again. I mean, it's, it's an academic monograph. It's it's being sure. it's being produced by by a company which is operating on very small margins and and of of necessity can't actually produce 
the books in quantities where economies of scale would kick in. So is this more going to so, be found in academic sources rather than, for example, what calls well, I, a big, sh- a yeah, big amount I, on the shelf? It's it's being marketed primarily to, to librarians. Okay. Um, and so I, I, I would be very disappointed, if, for example, if the University of Otago Library didn't end up with a copy. Yeah. Um, you, can, you can get it on Mighty Ape, I just saw it before. Well, oh, yeah, nice. no, it, it, it is, it is it's available. It's, it's available to the general public if yep. they want it, yep. Um, but it's it's there. It's it's looking at 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 Martin from a from a from a from an academic standpoint as to, as as to how he does what as to why he's as, as good at fantasy as he is, which is by you know getting the rules working to his advantage rather than breaking them. That's the hmm. well. Listen, this has been a fascinating talk. I feel like we could keep going for another hour if we wanted to. There's all yeah. sorts of things to talk about. It's sort of what we do here. We just chat until we're finished. And yeah. and because of the time frame, and I know Jace has got somewhere to be at 12.30 and uh, we need to kind of maybe start to wrap up. So I'll just say thank you, Joseph Young, for coming in. Uh, the book is George R.R. R. Martin and the Fantasy Form. We'll make sure we put a link to that mm. on the Facebook page if people mm. want to come and check us out, Department of Conversation. But other than that, this has been fun. Well, and thank you. Interesting and enlightening. And um, I appreciate you coming in. Yeah, well, it's, it's been fun, fun fun for me too, so thank you. I don't have to watch Game of Thrones anymore now. I, I know what happens. So <laughs> People, people, do, I, 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 I remember I came across something in the New Statesman a while ago where it was a woman saying, a woman saying you know, I, I watch Game of Thrones now because it's nice to watch something I have no engagement in whatsoever. <laughs> and that's, and that's, and that's what, uh, that's, that's one of the examples I've given of, of declining Re, uh, viewer enthusiasm, but again, that's the new statesman, and they're they're preoccupied with making sure that everyone understands that you know Brexit is going to going to stop you, <laughs> stop the hens from laying. We'll be able to stop there. We'll start yes, talking yes, about yes, Brexit, yes. then we'll go for another oh, three God, hours. Yeah, we don't want to do that. All okay, right, guys, so thanks for coming in. Thanks. All right, there you go. That is uh, Dr. Joseph Young talking about the works of George R.R. Martin and, of course, other things as well, like fantasy in general as well. Hey, um, coming up next week, we are having a chat with Professor David Clough. Uh He is a British author and academic, and he has a focus on the Christian vegetarian and Christian vegan movements. So uh, the idea about people with a certain religious belief also believing because of that belief, vegetarianism and veganism is a part of it. I'm actually really looking forward to this one. He's booked in to come in next Wednesday as I look at Jace. Yep, next Wednesday is correct. So make sure you tune in for David Clow uh, next week as well. And of course, a big thank you. Uh, this episode in part has uh, been brought to you by the guys at Velo, velo.co.nz. They are the experts in wooden glasses, sunglasses, and watches. Uh, All their glasses and watches are handcrafted from laminated wood for durability. They have a fantastic range. Uh, Check them out at velo.co.nz. And if you want to um, have a look at the winners of the competition we ran through May, then head to our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash D-E-P-T of conversation. And we'll be doing more of these competitions and giveaways as we go through as well. So make sure you keep an eye on that Facebook page. Go along and like it and you will be able to get amazing content and also you'll have chances to win um, amazing prizes as we go through the rest of the year. All right, I think that's us for now. Uh, we'll see you next week with Professor David Clough. Until then, hooroo!